Hi, I'm Jamin. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Dan Stradman, VP of Consumer and Market Insights at the Lubrizol Corporation, a Berkshire Hathaway company. Lubrizol Corporation is a provider of specialty chemicals for the transportation, industrial, and consumer markets. Their products include many different types of additives from transportation-related fluids like engine oils to personal care products, pharmaceuticals, and medical devices. Since 2011, Lubrizol has been a subsidiary of the Berkshire Hathaway company, and it has generated over $7 billion in annual revenue. It has an employee headcount of approximately 8,300 people globally. Prior to joining Lubrizol, Dan started his career as a research project manager for a nonprofit. Since then, he has served as Director of Consumer Insights and Strategy at Walmart, Director of Brand and Comms at Kantar TNS, and the VP of Market Insights, Analytics, and Strategy at GE. Dan, thanks so much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me today. Today, almost everyone has taken surveys, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for professional market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel, and research services, SurveyMonkey just launched a fast and easy way to collect market research feedback with seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customizable methodology, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, You can get feedback on your idea from your target market in a presentation-ready format. Oh, and by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, please visit surveymonkey.com slash market-research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market-research. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast comes from FuelCycle. This episode is brought to you by FuelCycle Ignition. Ignition is the agile insights platform that enables leaders and their teams to improve product, brand, customer, and employee experiences with no insights experience required. With FC Live virtual focus groups and interviews, an ad effectiveness solution, and survey automation capabilities, FuelCycle Ignition offers the only all-in-one Agile Insights ecosystem for supercharging the relationship between brands and their customers, and serves the world's most innovative brands, including Google, Hulu, Tufts Health Plan, Kahart, and more. To learn how Ignition can take your research to the next level, visit FuelCycle.com. I like to start out with a little bit of context. It you know helps all of us sort of level set. Tell us a little bit about your parents and what they did and how that informed your current career. Yeah, thanks, Jamin. You know, I grew up in in somewhat rural Ohio, you know, halfway between Cleveland and Toledo. My mom was a school teacher, and when uh, she had me and then my sister, she ended up not uh, working until we got to the age we were both going to school, and then she worked part-time. My dad worked actually for my grandpa, who owned an electric contracting company there, and so, you know, he you know, spent 40 odd years doing uh, electrical work around town. He has probably been in, in two two thirds of the buildings in Sandusky, Ohio over the course of his career. And so growing up there, I mean, for the most part, uh, 
it is fairly rural, although the, a lot of tourism runs through there because there's uh, it's right on Lake Erie and there's an amusement park there that draws from the Midwest. But I think, you know, one of the biggest impacts they probably had on my development was it never was a question of whether I was going to go to college. There was an expectation that that was going to happen. And so really, you know, when I entered uh, college, you know, they were very supportive of it, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I did. And then, you know, about four majors later, I settled on psychology. And then that kind of took me down a path that eventually and and somewhat haphazardly led me into market research. You know, as I move through psychology, I think it's interesting because you get, when you're in an academic setting, you get feedback from advisors, you get feedback from professors, and they kind of hold that up as the epitome of that degree. So it was expected you kind of go on and get an advanced degree. I was a good student, not good enough to probably go in and get a straight PhD. So I moved from Ohio uh, at the University of Dayton now to the University of Colorado to get a master's degree in clinical psychology. And it was along that path I started to kind of change my focus in terms of, you know, hey, is being a clinical psychologist really the career that I want or is there something else that might be more suited to some of the things I was recognizing I was pretty good at? So thankfully in grad school, I working for that nonprofit through grad school, I started to learn what's essentially called program evaluation, where you're doing the research side of clinical psychology, but it's a very applied research. So you're going into different entities and working through the process on how they collect data, the impact that they're having on a community, and then how to improve those things to get a greater impact. And, you know, I had a, a really forward-thinking professor there who started to push me in those ways around statistical analysis, around what was the beginnings of analytics. And so when I finished my graduate degree, I took a, a year sales job and with Wells Fargo and then ended up being able to get back into kind of more the analytics side, working as a, as a business analyst for the university for a few years. And from there, that really was the launching point of kind of recognizing like, hey, if I stay in academia, the path probably doesn't have a lot of financial benefit because I wasn't going to go on and get a PhD. I, I knew that that wasn't something I wanted to do. And so I started to try to make the transition into market research and, you know, ended up moving to Atlanta for a short time and, and working for Earthlink and then moving to back to Ohio to Toledo with TNS for a few years and both the CPG and the automotive sectors. Uh, and then eventually Walmart and GE, and and that's led me to where I'm at today. But I kind of like to say I was a I was a failed psychologist before it was cool to be one. <laughs> and uh, uh, but it's it's been a it's been a, a background and a training that you know has blessed me across the years to have some pretty amazing uh, colleagues and pretty amazing roles. There's not a lot of guests that have been on the show that have both the supplier and the brand. You know, the internal researcher perspective. I imagine, you know, come, having that dual background that aids you a lot in, um, in your current role. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's funny because moving from TNS to Walmart, you know, when you're on a supplier side, I mean, you're doing the work and you're really trying to figure out and, and you're going out and talking to the consumers in surveys or in focus groups or whatever the methodology is. And then you deliver and you kind of falls into a black hole a lot of times. And so recognizing that one, I think it prepared me to be a better partner when I got on the corporate side. 
in understanding some of the demands on the, on suppliers and the demand on vendors and kind of what helps them improve and what helps them grow as partners. But I also walked into Walmart with a with a bit of a skill set to figure stuff out. In fact, I remember it was within the first couple of weeks I was there, my boss at the time had said, hey, you know, we've got this data from human resources and they've done some surveys and they were asking for some help on this. It's kind of all convoluted. You know, I don't know if you can make any sense of it, but they kind of need it by tomorrow if you can. But if not, don't worry about it. I don't I don't really expect anything. And, you know, it's one of those cases where when you're on a supplier side, you use VLOOKUPs in Excel and you're able to kind of really manipulate poor data because you end up in situations where you've got to be creative. And so I was able to pull something together that was fairly cohesive fairly quickly. And I remember my boss said it was kind of like, wow, you know, like this guy's got a little bit of a future here. So even today, I think having that background on the supplier side, whether it was G- at GE or, or, or now Lubrizol, I think, you know, it allows us to be more effective when we think about how to direct suppliers for to get the best outcomes because you don't want these things to be transactional. And uh, certainly there's been a push across most companies to kind of push to a procurement model, you know, to push to kind of this like centralized buying function that treats buying market research the same as kind of treating buying a raw material. But I think I fully recognize that, you know, you, you've got to have the right mix between, you know, value, but also quality of partnership. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that point more. I, I've not been on your side of the fence, but as you know, over a 20-year veteran in the space, the companies that get the most out of me are the ones that treat it, understand that it is a it is in fact a partnership. So our space has gone through a lot of evolution. There's a report done by a consultancy called Watermark Consulting. They analyze the S&P 500 for commonalities among like overperformers and underperformers and what they found was that last year companies that employed consumer insights to make business decisions outperform the index by 45 points. What was really interesting in the report, though, for me, is that companies that didn't employ, they actually underperformed the index by 76 points. And so in, in that context, how have you seen over the last five years the role of consumer insights change inside of top companies? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Uh, and in fact, uh, I haven't seen that particular consultant report, so I may need to hit you up later to get it to make sure I forward it to my CFO and my CEO, by the way. Um, so uh, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, that is one of the key changes is you really have to be focused in as an insights leader on return on investment and and what does that dollar buy me and that can be very difficult to do especially when you're talking about foundational research or early and early stage research type concept testing and when you don't have a clear visibility to sales like we do at, at Lubrizol because in many cases we're you know providing components to things that end up becoming other things and so having that clear vision for how to establish a return on investment metric or a set of them for your organization, I think, is a critical capability that any insights leader needs to develop. I think the other thing is we've obviously seen a rise of data, and that data is extraordinarily uh, diverse in terms of, of where it's coming from, who's generating and who's analyzing it. I'm not necessarily sure that has always been translated into more insight. 
right? So we're a little bit data rich and insight poor. And part of that is just, do we have the right tools? Do we have the right talent? And are we given the time to really allow for that translation to occur? You know, the third element to that change over the last five years is just speed and sense of urgency. You know, I I remember being, you know, somewhat of a methodologist at, at Walmart, probably to my own detriment, when in reality, as I was striving to get 90 to 100% kind of variance explained, the organization was just saying, look, if you can get me 65% away there, that's already smarter than we are, and then we can kind of move faster. And so you have to kind of come off of that methodological mountain and be pragmatic. Uh, that's one thing I, I've stressed to, you know, the teams that I've led over the, the past decade is just a pragmatism. Yes, you don't want to, you want to have methodological rigor, but you also need to have a pragmatism when it comes to being able to turn those insights into action at the speed of business. Which is ever increasing. And you know, I, th- I think the current state of the world in this global pandemic, you know, now resurging again in the U.S., uh, as we're having this conversation in July 8th, 2020, how has the global pandemic impacted market research? Well, it, yeah, it's certainly impacted the ability to do some methodologies at all, right? I mean, calling together people to sit around a, a table in a dark area, you know, in, in a strip mall in Columbus, Ohio, isn't going to happen anytime soon. And so the toolbox needs to expand. You know, for for us, it's meant using more data collection tools that are self-provided, right? So the ability to capture video on, on a mobile device or, or something like that and then use analytics or analysis to make sense of that you know text to text surveys uh there's a couple firms out there that do that i think fairly effectively and thankfully we had done some of the legwork even before we knew you know there was obviously going to be a pandemic we had kind of pressure tested those so we had some relationships developing so we kind of shifted away from some of those more traditional ethnography and focus group type qualitative work into that more distributed model the other element is, you know, now that you don't have shared spaces at work because we're not in the office, right? We're a distributed team now. We're all working from home. And I honestly, that light at the end of the tunnel feels fairly distant. Thankfully, earlier this year, we had launched our Insights Engine, which is really a digital hub around kind of all the insights that, that make a company tick. And there's, there's plenty of companies that have done that, especially in the consumer packaged goods and services spaces. So we're not unique in that area. I think we are fairly unique when it comes to maybe our competitive set. But that's really allowed us to carry on some momentum because it's now essentially the insights megaphone. And, and the great thing is the organizations respond. And we've seen, we launched honestly, two weeks before kind of these work from home orders. And and we've seen great membership. We've seen great uh, engagement in the tool. And it's really helped to push some different strategic actions as well. So I, I think it's been fairly effective. So you know, if, if I think about in some, how is the pandemic impacting market research? It's you end up having to Focus in on what's going to drive the organization forward in the short term while not losing sight in the long term. So if there's things that you can do as an insights professional that maybe even aren't 
part of your job description normally, right? And maybe they're not what you thought. You know, I'm a custom researcher and I, you know, run these things. You may need to become a kind of a strategy uh, moderator where you're helping them develop different scenarios and thinking through the business implications. You kind of need to be water and you need to flow where the cracks take you to make sure that the organization is still using insight to move forward as much as possible. So I think the team here has done that. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased with that. I think that's good counsel to, to any insights team right now is to just help where you can because the world's never seen anything like this. I really like your water analogy. I wish I could quote the Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee quote, but anyway, I can't. <laughs> Not good enough there, but yeah. No, I just watched his. I just watched his uh, biography too, and and I'm failing on on bringing that quote back as <laughs> anyway, well. So maybe because anyway. it's a podcast, I can sound really smart in the post production. <laughs> yeah, you can push that right in and and just blow everybody's mind. <laughs> oh, which I would never do, but that is pretty funny. So instrumentizing or instrumentation, instrumentizing the consumer insights role is something that I've felt is one of the biggest opportunities in consumer insights. What kind of things do you put in that dashboard or system that you have? Yeah, it's definitely not a dashboard, right? I mean, it's truly a system. So it, it steals kind of from social media practices, right? So you have posts and you have the ability to drill down on different markets or categories or contributors. You've got search capabilities, right? You're able to upload multimedia, right? So it's not flat file based. You can, and that multimedia then becomes searchable. So this is really, a, it, it's an insight engine. And that came from some early conversations we had after I joined in 2017, where the organization latched on to what was, I think, a, it was a Harvard Business Review article that took a deep dive into Unilever and the work they did in kind of this insights engine world, right? And so we started in earnest on that journey probably in late 2018, and, and we're able to launch it by the beginning of 2020. So the instrumentation of it is that now, instead of general manager or, or marketer calling somebody and going, hey, can you search for this for me, right, on all the many resources we have, the syndicated resources or, you know, of which we have probably 50 plus, or the custom work that we've done to this point, which spans almost probably 100 studies over the past couple of years, it's self-service to start. It's always on. We're a global company. The team's in, in Shanghai and Mumbai and in the UK and Spain can all search on their own time. And then the next question, you know, so the first question isn't, can you search this? They can do that themselves. And then the, the subsequent questions are more value add, right? So it's like, hey, I found this. What do you think about this? Or can we build off of this now that I understand this topic? So that's at a very base level. What we've tried to do here is to do more with the great work the team's already doing and, and force multiply it across the org. You know, I'm always very careful because I've heard it her said inside, you know, we need to get to this point where there's artificial intelligence, right, to kind of push and self-analyze some of this stuff. And I think at some point we probably get there. I don't know if we get there in a way that's 
really actionable in, in my career, maybe. But I, I've been very careful to make sure when I hear AI and that, that we talk about augmented intelligence and not necessarily artificial. It's, it's how do you enable the teams? You know, it's more of an exoskeleton than a robot. And because the insights team and the marketers and the business managers, like it's more about how do we empower them to do more with what they have than necessarily replace what they're doing with kind of artificial means. So then like you think about like this post-pandemic world, in a lot of ways, we've now completely digitized or digital, yeah, digitized the market research process, right? The actual research ops elements of it. Before, we would do things like in-person focus groups. And while that obviously is still going to happen, it's fundamentally different going forward. What sort of tools or techniques or methodologies do you think a post-pandemic researcher, that is all of us, uh, should be cultivating in order to maintain an edge in consumer insights? I mean, depending on the markets you serve, right? I mean, certainly in the consumer space, you know, you've got to be able to reach out, uh, you know, and, and get a wide variety of, of opinions, both quant and qual. So I don't think survey research is necessarily going away because that can be done at home. And there's plenty of people smarter than me who can argue whether survey research has the same validity that it once did and, and that. And I don't begin to say that, you know, it does or it doesn't. But I think it's more of some of those articles that used to be done face-to-face, you know, intercepts and focus groups and in-person ethnography that just going out and making sure that you have a tool set where you can reach people in ways that avoid you having to actually physically be there. And there's plenty of companies out there that are, are playing in that space right now. And so just find, find the ones that make the best partner to yours. That's a tough one. You know, with one of the transitions, you do see a lot of market research departments or insights departments moving to more of that you know, we're going to program our own surveys and we're going to hire an ethnographer. And, and I think those work. I wonder if those structures might be a little bit under fire, though, in a post-pandemic world, right? Because you are going to need to rely on vendors probably because the technology is moving so rapidly. And that so certainly, you know, having that right tool set and continuing to go out and investigate cutting edge tools. I think actually this is probably the pandemic is probably going to create new opportunities, create new companies out of this that can reach consumers or end users or up and down the value chain players in different ways. I'd love to see it happen more on the B2B side. Obviously, that's self-serving because my team does actually go all the way to the consumer in some cases, but we're also talking to different value chain players, whether it's, you know, for additives that might be truck drivers or, you know, for some of our industrial sectors that might be plumbers or folks like that that just aren't typically all that reachable in a, in a kind of standard consumer panel. So I think those types of things are going to be important. I think the text to analytics stuff could probably be uh, additionally invested in. We're playing in that now. And um, some of it's good. Some of it, I think, lacking a data dictionary, it really struggled to, to kind of tie those things together into true insights. Again, a lot of data, not sure quite what to make of some of it. But if I was somebody who was early in my career, you know, it used to be kind of you'd have your your research folks, your custom folks almost, and then you'd have your analytics folks. And I think those are blending a bit. You still are going to have people with great expertise in both. But if you're you can't be a, a market researcher and insights person without some understanding of analytics and un, some understanding of how data and the bigger data 
pieces fit in. And, I, and in the same vein, I don't think from an analytics perspective, you're doing yourself the best service to not have that visibility into some of the things that get uncovered in insights work because you end up without the why in a lot of cases. So thankfully, I have a little bit of flavor in both. But if I fall on either side, it's probably more the insight side. But I'm, I know enough analytics to be dangerous. And then lastly, it's just, I think, data visualization. How do you use that data to tell a story? We actually had this conversation with the team today about getting Power BI training more effectively rolled out across the team because, you know, how you can tell stories with data and be able to capture that and put that into our tool, our megaphone, right, which does actually account for Power BI. It's just a skill set that I think, you know, you look 10 years down the road and it's, it might become somewhat table stakes like Excel or PowerPoint is now. Do you think like in a, in a right now world, who's doing that really well? Is that at the agency level or is it happening inside of the brands? I think agency vendor level, they tend to do really well in niches, right? So one of the trends of the last decade, decade and a half is you've really lost the middle-sized vendors, right? Right, Because they've been swallowed up, you know, into the bigger conglomerates, right? And then they get rebranded and that. And so you end up with the big ones and then you end up with uh, the boutique ones. And so, you know, the boutiques tend to do one or two things. They like to think they can do a lot of things. And in some cases they can, but they do tend to do one or two things really well. And so that's fine, right? You can make a great living out of that. And the big ones, you know, I think have that greater continuity to be able to provide full service. But in a procurement led world, a lot of times they cost themselves out of it because they're adding price at every everything. So I think there's definitely... And the vendor side, that's probably what you're seeing is that these tools get developed and then they eventually work to get bought out or work to get kind of become part of these other things. So if you can catch them on the way up, a lot of times you can get some really cool thinking at a pretty reasonable cost. I do think there's a ton of creativity going on on the corporate side. And just knowing a lot of the folks I've worked with over the years and as that kind of tree has gotten more full, you know, some of the, the former colleagues I've had, at, whether it's TNS or, or Walmart or that, like, I mean, I think, you know, you've got some in leadership positions on both the, the corporate side and vendor side, and there's just really cool stuff coming out of it. So I don't mean to shirk that question. It's just, I think if you see a company that's succeeding in the market, most likely there's some cool stuff going on behind the scenes to help define their customers and define their value prop, which is coming from market strategy and coming from insight. So when you add a new, whether it's like tool or agency or supplier, what have you, it could even be like supporting the, the team from operational perspective. What do you look for? Well, you know, we, we did these vendor days at Walmart when I was there and our VP there started them. And it was really this chance for kind of, you know, it was like a, it was like a speed dating thing over the course of a day or two. And they'd come in and they'd get their, you know, 40 minutes to pitch and 20 minutes a question. And then, you know, it's on to bachelor number two. And you do that all day for a couple of days. And so, you know, from that came some great vendors. And I, and I like that. And I've used that process actually coming into Lubrizol now where we're we didn't really have a big vendor set. And what I realized at GE was I, I was doing some good stuff and I had a, a team that was doing good stuff, but I think I lost that 
kind of cutting edge, that that tap into cutting edge. And so I vow to not do that here at Lubrizol. And so we've done two of those now. We'll probably do a virtual one this year. So we do have that kind of speed dating thing set up where we ask folks purposefully to come in and a very small amount of time or to pitch in a very small amount of time, you know, 30 to 40 minutes with some questions. And the reason is, is that I want to see how well they get their point across, how well they get their value prop across. And it's not like we can't continue the conversation offline, but I think having firms that can kind of produce that in that short amount of time, if they can really come out of it and be impressed, that bodes well to their ability to write reports and to kind of be able to deliver what my expectations are. So hopefully I didn't give away the farm on that one, but I do think that there's a benefit. I mean, we tell them up front, like, hey, you got a small amount of time, so get to the point, right? I don't need the full origin story. You know, so that's an element of it. You know, we also try to do pilots, I think, for a newer function at a company, which we certainly are at Lubrizol. And you want to have some success points to draw from. And then we want them to have a little bit of skin in the game. So look, normally this might be a $40,000 project. So for this first one, given there's an unknown quantity, like is there some skin in the game you can put in it, into it to try to, to earn new business? And that's worked out pretty well for both sides, I think. I, th- I don't think anyone's necessarily walked away going, wow, that wasn't worth the 10% price reduction or 20% price reduction or whatever because it gives them a chance to stand out. But it comes down to just saying, look, what's the one thing you do better than anybody else in the world? And what's that project that if it came across your desk, you guys would be like, yep, this is our fastball right down the center. And this is the one we, you know, we hit out of the park, you know, 99 times out of 100. Because that allows us to set them up for success. You know, when trying out a new vendor, I don't want to put them in a situation where they have to stretch necessarily to do something that isn't in their wheelhouse. I'd rather, if this is the one thing they do better than anybody, give them a chance to prove that. And so I push that on my directors. I want them to work with who they feel comfortable with, who they think can deliver against their accountabilities. And so thankfully, the directors I have have a lot of experience and I think do a good job of ultimately picking the partners they work with on custom work and for that matter, syndicated work. With this new tool in the toolbox, we want to integrate all the syndicated work into the tool because that's going to make the search more powerful. And for some vendors, that's a really tough thing to hear because they work on seat licenses or they work on, you know, access by location. I mean, how's that going to work in a post-pandemic world? If you're charging based on how many sites access, that's a struggling business model, I think. So we want vendors who can kind of understand, like, if if you can get into these systems, you're going to get a lot more folks using the insights that you're generating. Therefore, you're going to have value, which means that you're less likely to lose business with us. I think that's a bit of a snapshot on how we make that evaluation. I love that. And I actually, that's like right in the middle of my ethos, which is you need to add value in a free way. And if you do that, then you build relationships with humans and those relationships wind up netting more projects, right? So like if we are really concerned with the terms of trade, like they used to be even like two years ago, very transactional in nature, then you can start, I think in the post-pandemic, you're going to start losing out to companies that have a I don't want to say philanthropic point of view, but you know maybe more of a liberal point of view on how they're actually getting compensated for the insights. 
Yeah, I think, that, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I think that's easier said than done, right? And hopefully you're right. And don't get me wrong. I mean, we're a for-profit company as are any of these, right? And and that, and so the, the goal is never to, you know, to get something for nothing. I think the goal is to say, how do we set up the relationship so that it's, it's mutually beneficial and has a future, right? I try to avoid transactional relationships as much as possible because I just, you know, market research, you know, from a career standpoint, if you're five years into it right now, like you got to understand it's an extraordinarily small world. Extraordinarily. I connected today with a, a guy who I worked with at TNS who's in a new venture and I hadn't talked to him in 12 years, right? But those relationships last. And so if you're good to vendors, if you're a good vendor, right, that's going to resonate. And this is a tough industry if you're known for being anything but genuine. So be genuine and be real and be fair as much as you can. And I think it'll work out. So as you think about building successful insights teams, the strategy teams. Is there a guiding principle that you've used to follow somehow to optimize the talent? Yeah, so it's evolved, right? As I've gotten bigger teams and different accountabilities, you have to evolve it. But I mean, I'm going to, I stole a couple points from VP at Walmart because he always said, look, you hire smart, nice people. And so I was like, okay, that, that makes sense, right? Because smart, you know, you, you need people to really be able to, to think through problems and figure stuff out, right? You need to have that kind of ability to do that. And even if the intelligence or the experience is a little bit off from what you're asking them to do. If they're smart enough and have that right mindset, they'll figure it out. Nice. I mean, you just, you want to have a folks on your team who you enjoy working with, right? You want to have people who assume positive intent and in interactions. I've evolved that over the years and included kind of driven, if you would. And I actually don't mind people have a little bit of a, a chip on their shoulder to prove themselves because that shows that internal drive. There's a lot of reasons why people get up every day and go to work. For some, it's the outcome. For some, it's, you know, look, they're, they're trying to put food on the table for their family, right? For some, it's, you know, they love feeling that that sense of accomplishment or being congratulated or, you know, getting that award. And any of those are fine, right? As long as there's some drive internally that fuels you and I can work with that. Above all, you know, you need ethical folks, right? You have to have a, an ethical orientation. If you don't, you just, you shouldn't, whether it's an insights team or any other team, you know, I, I would struggle with that and and that. You know, as I've been here at Lubrizol, you know, what I've really tried to focus in on is development. And so, you know, we created some roles on the team that are really meant for high potential talent, maybe a little earlier in their career that doesn't necessarily have to be insights people. So we kind of bring them in and goal is for them to spend a couple of years to kind of increase their commercial acumen, increase their storytelling abilities, increase their analytical abilities, and to really have a more of a think external market driven mindset, because those are our cultural beliefs that we're moving the organization to, to be more focused focused on the market drivers. And so, you know, that's been, I think, a real success. We've already had, even in the short time I've been here, we've had one person come in from human resources function, and then she's rolled off actually into a product management role, right, in the additives business. And, and so by focusing in on that talent and really developing it, we hope to be able to kind of create evangelists in the organization that really, you know, have, have the ethos. Yes, along the way, they might learn how to run a focus group, or they might learn how to analyze a conjoint and that. It's less about, okay, I know how to run a focus group, and more about how do I take, how do I create the insights out of that data? And then how do I turn that insight 
into something that's actionable, into a strategy, into a new commercial opportunity, into the innovation pipeline. And so that's been that's been a lot of fun here. But overall, I'm blessed to have extraordinarily good people and teams. And my hope is uh, that can continue based on some of those ethos of how we try to bring people into the group and invest in them. You know, mentorship is critical. So if you're, you know, wherever you're at in your career, you should always have folks who are your sounding boards. You should always have folks who you can truly look to and are going to give you critical feedback. Another boss of mine always, you know, I remember as an early manager, I would, there was somebody who was working for me and I wasn't happy with the results. And so I tried to kind of do it, right? I tried to kind of go in there and fix things. And his point was like, look, you can do that or you can actually let that person have a performance to measure, right? Because if you just go in and fix everything, then the performance is yours. It's not that person's. And so you've got to be willing to put in the work to give critical feedback that's going to grow someone. I learned something from it. So thank you for that. My guest today has been Dan Stradman, VP of Consumer and Market Insights at the Lubrizol Corporation. Dan, thanks for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Take care and be well. Everyone else, if you found value in this episode, like I know you did, please take time, screen capture, share it on social media, tag me in LinkedIn or Twitter, and I will send you a special gift. Have a great rest of your day.